yourselves to God. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? I'm just going to push these together, just because I know there's some people who are finding that annoying. Yes. It's been a long 40 minutes, but... uh, Wow, yeah, that was tough. Let's, uh, hopefully now we can all focus. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that uh, you love us in Jesus and uh, you love us at such great cost that you've sent your only son to die for us. And Lord, thank you that we've been able to remember that already this morning. But Lord, we pray as we reflect on your word now and as we think about the shape of our lives and the uh, shape of our loves, Lord, that you would press the love of Christ deeply into our hearts. Lord, we ask it because we know that's the best thing that you can give to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I went to the, uh, to the dentist this week for my annual checkup. Uh, I have it in my calendar every year so that I don't forget. Uh, and I think I had about the most passionate dental hygienist that you could ever imagine. I've never met anyone who's so passionate about dental health, uh, or probably just about passionate about just about anything. Uh, and in particular, this lady was passionate about dental health for the elderly. And she gave me an illustration of what it was about that that she was so passionate about and, and why she was so passionate. So the example went something like this. She said, imagine that there's uh, an elderly person, perhaps they have dementia, and they can't communicate exactly what the, you know, they can't communicate very well what the problem is that they're experiencing. Uh, they have some kind of dental problem. How does that present? Well, it might present in them not actually wanting to eat anymore. You know, it's painful to eat, and so they kind of actually stop eating. Uh, And then perhaps uh, maybe there's an infection there as well uh, and they're prescribed antibiotics uh, to to kind of cure that and that does the trick, the the infection goes away. 
But if the tooth has a hole in it, and that's why that infection is there in the first place, just giving them antibiotics isn't going to solve the problem. The infection will clear up, uh, but it's just going to come back uh, in a little bit of time. Without dealing with the root cause of the problem, the infection will just kind of come back again. Uh, and, and that same kind of idea of, if you like, symptoms and root causes is a great problem in lots of areas of life as well. That is, we need to be able to distinguish between the presenting symptoms that we see and the actual underlying cause. Because if we only ever treat the symptoms of, of what we see, then we won't actually be able to cure the disease or remedy the problem. Uh, and the same is true so often in the Christian life as well. There might be lots of kind of presenting sins, if you like, in our lives. There might be lots of presenting problems. There's the things that we see on the surface. But actually, often those things are coming from the deep well within us, that is our own hearts. And that's what God is trying to show to us in this passage of James. In the section uh, from last week, for those who are here, we looked at how speech can be incredibly destructive. What we say can cause havoc. Just like a tiny spark can, can cause this raging bushfire, our speech can cause a raging fire which destroys both ourselves and others as well. And now in this section of James, he's really following up on that idea and showing how wrong speech and wrong behavior flows out of our wrong desires and our wrong loves. So first of all, James highlights that one of the particular speech problems that was happening in this church was uh, that they were quarreling and fighting. So he says in verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? The implication is they were quarreling and they were fighting. But it's also clear from at the end of the section in verse 11 and 12 that the people in the church were not just quarreling and fighting, but slandering each other. Verse 11, brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. It's a pretty sad state of affairs, isn't it, when, uh, when people in the church uh, slander one another. That is, people bought by the blood of Jesus quarrel and fight amongst themselves and uh, denigrate each other. But that's what was happening in this church that James was writing to. It's astonishing, isn't it? They were judging each other, condemning each other, failing to keep Jesus' command to love one another. And yet James is less interested here in the symptoms. He's talked about the, the, kind of the, the symptoms before. He's less interested now in the symptoms, the fights, the quarrels and the slander, then in the root cause, he realizes that just to try and stop the symptoms, the fights, the quarrels, without treating the disease is pointless. So he says in verse 1, what causes the fights and quarrels? What, where do they come from? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. So you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. What's causing the fights and the quarrels? Well, the answer is they come from the desires. There's stuff that these people want, that these Christians want. There's stuff that they want that others have, and that's causing jealousy and bitterness, and that's coming out in the things that they're saying. It can happen so easily, I think, can't it? Uh, someone at work gets a promotion. It's the promotion that you wanted. You've been working for years for it. And rather than being happy for them, how do you respond? You respond by rubbishing them behind their back. 
Uh, you know, you might say something like, well, they only got the job because they're, they, they're sucking up to the boss. You know? I'm not going to play that game. <laughs> I'm so holy. I'm not going to play that game. But they played that game and that's why they got the job. Or you might say something like, I don't know why they got the job because look at their work, it's rubbish. They've never done a good thing in all the time that they've been here. It can happen at work, it can happen in the church as well. Someone gets a ministry role that you've, that you've always wanted uh, and rather than kind of celebrating that, uh, you, you rubbish them. Or they get the kudos that you wanted. Uh, or they get the respect that you want from other people. How do you respond? You respond by undermining their ministry. Or you grumble behind their back. Or you cast aspersions about how committed they are to the quality of their family life. Uh, you know, or how, really, how committed are they really to the work of the gospel? Uh, or you might respond by picking fights with the people who honour them. Now, I don't know why you're so taken up with that person, you know. You're an idiot, so you're, just, you're blind to their, to their real flaws. Uh, or maybe there's some other decision at work or in the church that doesn't go your way, and you respond by saying something like, well, if that's what you're going to do, then I'm out of here, I'm leaving, that's it. If you're not going to do it my way, I'm off. You hold people hostage to your desires and your wants. And to be honest, I don't think that way of dealing with uh, things is beneath any of us. I think that holding people hostage to our ideas and our loves and our desires is an ever-present danger in our lives for all of us. And the damage that that causes the church and any kind of relationship, frankly, is breathtaking. So easy to do, isn't it? It only takes five seconds to say that. But the damage that it can cause is immense. Or take another example. Uh, maybe someone has a more luxurious life than you and you want what they've got, uh, but you can't get it. Well, what's the easiest way to make yourself feel better about uh, where you're at? Well, you can tear them down. Why not take the moral high ground and accuse them of being worldly? They only live like that because they're not really committed to Jesus. But I'm so godly, that's why I'm poor. It looks so wonderful, doesn't it? You know, because at the same time as destroying them, you're lifting yourself up. I'm so godly, but actually what it's doing is it's masking your deep-seated greed and love of what they have and you don't have. James says, how we speak often reflects what's in our hearts. And James is right, isn't he? that these words that come out of our hearts are so destructive. A small rudder steers a whole ship. A tiny spark destroys a church. And yet the roots of that lies in our hearts and not in our mouths. It lies in our love and not in our, uh, sorry, in our loves and our desires uh, and not in our mouths. And although I think James is focusing here on the particular issues of greed and jealousy, we probably shouldn't think that they're the only kinds of desires that lead to kind of unhelpful words and unhelpful speech. It's just, I think, that that was the particular issue that was, uh, uh, you know, at, that was at issue in this, uh, in this church. But there can be other kind of hidden causes of our words. So uh, I remember hearing uh, one guy speak who had to face up to the reality of how he was speaking to his wife. She would come home late, uh, sometimes 
from whatever appointment it was, uh, you know, she might walk in the door half an hour late. And how would he respond to that? He'd respond to that with frustration and anger. So she'd walk in the door and he'd say, why are you so late? Where have you been? I've been waiting for you. Uh, And he realized after a while that what was causing that frustration and anger was not actually frustration and anger, but fear. He was afraid about what had happened to her. And so the way that he responded to that when she walked in the door was to be angry. When what he should have said was, I'm so glad you're home. I've been so worried about you. Isn't it great that you're safe? (laughs) It's worth stopping to ask, I think, what are the desires, what are the things in our hearts which are shaping the words that we speak to people? It might be greed. It might be jealousy. It might be fear. It might be pride. It might be selfishness. It might be lovelessness. Uh, It might be an unhealthy longing to be affirmed and loved. It might be all of those things or something else entirely. But we need to look inside our hearts and we need to ask God to show us not just our presenting sins, but our deeper motivations. What's causing us to say that and to live like that? Because if we only deal with the words without dealing with the heart problem, it will be kind of like trying to sticky tape a fire hose back together again. It's just not going to work. It's not going to keep the water in. You have to turn the tap off if you want the water to stop. So the problem uh, with this church was not just what they were saying, but uh, it was more fundamentally the things in their hearts. But it wasn't just their relationship with one another that was a problem, but more fundamentally, the problem was also their relationship with God. So James goes on then in verse 2 to say, you do not have because you do not ask God. So He wants them to understand that the remedy to not having is not to fight and to quarrel, but to ask God. Uh, In other words, the solution to not having things, James is saying, is not to lash out at people with uh, with your words and to try and get things by kind of bringing people down a peg. The solution is to ask God who loves to give good gifts. And it's surprisingly easy, I think, for us uh, to just kind of let asking fall off the radar. It's remarkable, isn't it, that we would prefer to fight and argue with people because we don't have something rather than just to stop and to ask God for it. It's remarkable, isn't it, that that seems like a more sensible first step to fight and to quarrel than to approach the God who loves us. But so easy it is to do, I think. We steal before we ask. Or we spend our days and our nights kind of in a stew, devising schemes to get things for ourselves rather than just turning to God and and asking him. And trusting that if he wants us to have it, he'll give it to us. And if he doesn't want to give it to us, well, that's okay. It's amazing how often we take getting things into our own hands and never stop to ask God. And the problem is that that often leads us to try and get things in the wrong ways. Why squabble and fight and scheme and plan when we can just ask our loving Father and then trust him to do us good? And yet, James says, the problem is not only that these Christians and we... It's not, the problem is not just that we don't ask. The problem is that even when we do ask, so often we ask with the wrong motives. 
So verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? The most fundamental problem is not wanting what others have, nor even not asking God for things. The most fundamental problem is wanting those things more than we want God. We ask for things and scheme to get them so that we can spend them on our own pleasures rather than for the glory of God. In fact, probably the reason that we often don't ask God for things is because we know that we want them for all the wrong reasons. So we try and cover up. Well, if I don't ask God for it, if I just try and get it myself, maybe he won't notice that I have bad motives. (laughs) But God's not as stupid as we are. And it never ends well, does it? Trying to live life like that. Trying to pretend to God that we have great motives and then just working away to get it for ourselves. It never ends well. But the point is that the most fundamental problem, the cause of so much of our wrong desires, the cause of so much of our fights and arguments, is that we're in love with the world and in love with ourselves rather than being in love with God. There's a choice that we have to make. We can love one of two things. We can't love them both together. It doesn't work. We can love God or we can love the world. And to love the world is implicitly to choose not to love God supremely. Jesus says in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. It doesn't work. You can't have two employers at the same time. You can't serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It doesn't work. Divided loyalty, Jesus says, is no loyalty at all. It's like the husband who says, well, I love my wife, but I love my mistress too. It doesn't work like that. That's not the kind of love that a wife is expecting. And in the same way, it's not the kind of love that God is expecting. James says that God longs for our love jealously. Now that might sound strange to us because to us jealousy uh, it kind of is an evil emotion. If, if one of us wanted everyone to love us most of all, we'd think that they had some kind of narcissistic you know, kind of issue going on. But that's not the case with God, right? God is not just another human being. He's not just like one of us. God is our maker. He loves us more than we can ever know. He gives us life. Every breath that we breathe comes from his hand. We're nothing without God. We owe him everything. And it's his prerogative as God to expect our love, to ask for our love. And it's a great big slap in the face to love something else more than God. To love something else more than God when God has loved us so much and and still loves us so much. We've been bought at a great cost. We've been bought at the cost of God's own son. (laughs) How can we then love God only a little bit? How is that right? When God has loved us like that for us to love anything else in the place of him. Uh, As Bonhoeffer said, basically, It can't be cheap for us what it's cost 
God everything to buy? <laughs> How can we treat as worthless and as cheap what it's cost God everything to get for us? Now, that doesn't mean that we can never ask God for things that are enjoyable. The solution to loving God's gifts too much is not to love those gifts less, but actually to love God more. And to love God's gifts more because they come from God and are for his glory. Let me say that again. The solution to loving God's gifts too much is not to love those gifts less, but to love God more. So sometimes we, we, sometimes we get it right, I think, by God's grace. Sometimes we ask for things because we know that it will honor God. Uh, sometimes uh, we know that it will bring us joy, and so we ask God to give that to us. Uh, it's not that enjoying those, gifts, uh, those good gifts from God is wrong, God loves to give good gifts that we enjoy and enjoying God's gifts glorifies God. Sometimes we get it right and we go, Lord, this is a good gift from you and I want that. I want, I want that because I want to enjoy you. Sometimes we get that right. The problem is not asking for good gifts from God. The problem is wanting and loving those things more than God himself. So Augustine said, for a man loves you, you, know, for a man loves you too little, if besides you, he loves anything else which he does not love for your sake. A man loves you too little if besides you, he loves anything else which he does not love for your sake. It's not the good gifts that matters. It's not receiving them as a gift from God for his glory and our good. So, it's not always wrong to ask for things. Is it wrong to ask God for a husband or a wife or a child or... Uh, for a job, simply because it would bring you joy? Is it wrong to ask for those things? Well, it could be wrong, couldn't it? But it doesn't have to be. Uh, it could be that you're seeking those things selfishly, indulgently. It could be that you're seeking those things for your own benefit, uh, and not because they're precious gifts from God to be received with joy. But it could also be that you're seeking some of those things because you know God created it for good. And because you want to experience God's goodness and you want to enjoy that and honor God in that. That's right. So how do we know? Well, maybe the greatest test, I think, of whether we want, it, whether we want something selfishly or whether we want it for the glory of God, the greatest test is whether we can live without it. The test of whether our trust and joy in God is big enough uh, is, is whether if God didn't give it to us, we could still be happy in him. That's the great test. If God didn't give it to us, could we still be happy in him? Because you see, if we, can't, if we want it and God doesn't give it to us and that means our life means nothing, what does that say about how much we value that thing and how much we value God? It's a terrible indictment, isn't it? And I'm sure we've all been there. We don't get it and we think, my life's not worth living anymore. What a, what a, 
How cheap to treat God in such a way that he gives us life and breath and we should think our lives not worth living because we don't have that cheap trinket and yet we have God himself come down into our world, died on a cross. We have God himself dwelling in us through the work of the Holy Spirit. How silly to think that our life isn't worth living because God doesn't give us one little thing that we wanted. If not receiving what we want means that we become distant from people or we want to give up on life or we want to give up on God or we become angry or we begin to think about the underhanded ways that we can get what it is that we want, those are all signs that we've come to love the gift more than the giver. That we love the world more than we love God. Now on the opposite side, being able to live without something doesn't necessarily mean that we actually love God instead. To know whether we love God, we need to ask uh, what it is that we, that we, where it is that we ground our ability to live without something. So that is, how do you console yourself when you don't get something? Is it by saying, well, I can trust God that I can live without this. I trust that whatever I think I need, God thinks that I can live without it. How do you respond when you don't get, your, get what you want? Is God enough? Is your hope anchored in God? And the second test is this. How do you respond when you do get what you want? Is God forgotten? Or are you deeply, deeply thankful? It's so easy, isn't it, to forget the giver and take the gift. We do it all the time with people, don't, don't we? Someone gives us a birthday present or a Christmas present or something like that. And we're so enthralled by the gift that we forget about the person who, who gave it to us. But when we love that person more, it shows that we appreciate them, not just what they've given to us. And God, that's a great test for us. Do we appreciate what God has given to us or do we appreciate the God who has given it. The problem is not seeking good gifts that come from God for our own enjoyment. The problem is the idolatry of those things. The problem is loving those things besides God rather than for God's sake. It's seeking them not as good gifts but simply for our own indulgence or because we think that they'll complete us rather than recognizing that what will complete us is knowing God in Jesus Christ. So the root cause then of this quarreling in this church is covetousness, wanting what other people had and also loving the world rather than God. But what's the remedy to that? If that's, that was a problem for this church, how are they to deal with that? If that's your problem, how are you to deal with that? Well, James tells us in verse 6, but he gives us more grace. Extraordinary, isn't it? Even though God, uh, God longs jealously for our love and even though we often love the world in the place of him, James says God still pours out more and more grace to us. How does he show grace? Well, the scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So what are we to do? Verse 7, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your, heart, your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. What do we do if we love the world more than God? God says, humble yourself. 
What does that mean? It means submitting ourselves to God. It means resisting the devil when he urges us to love the world and to live for the world rather than for God. It means drawing near to God. It means washing our hands, not physically, but metaphorically. That is, getting rid of the sin in our lives, being hardcore about killing off the things that draw us away from God. Do you love cars too much? Well, sell your expensive car and buy something cheaper. You won't regret it. Do you love work too much? Well, lock in fixed hours every week and don't work any more than that. Do you love TVs and movies too much? Set a limit for what you're going to watch and stick to it. But James says we not, we not only need to, to, to get rid of the sin in our lives, but we need to also grieve over it. He says to his readers, grieve, mourn, and wail. There's, kind of a, there's a place, James wants us to realize, God wants us to realize, there's a place for lamenting sin in our lives. We don't need to stay there forever. James isn't calling us to a life of kind of constant tears and sackcloth and ashes. But there's a place, he says, for mourning over sin. There's a place for confessing it to God. There's a place for moving ourselves from laughter to mourning. The aim isn't to make ourselves miserable, but to get a sense of the gravity of sin and to acknowledge to our loving Heavenly Father that we've hurt Him. Imagine, imagine if you hurt somebody that you really loved and they said, you've hurt me, and you said, well, I'm sorry for that, and, just, and you just moved on with your life. You know, you deeply, deeply hurt them. You said, well, I know that you forgive me, I'm just moving on with life, though. What would they think? They would think you didn't really care about what you'd done. James is saying there's a place for saying to God, you know what? I'm really sorry, God. I'm really sorry for what I've done. I know that it's hurt you. Uh, it's not that our tears and our grief make God forgive us. Uh, you know, what's that famous hymn? Could my tears, or, or my, what was it? Uh, could my tears forever ever flow? Uh, I can't even remember it. How's it go? Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save in you alone. <laughs> it's not that our tears make us right with God. Now, if we understand the cross rightly, we'll never think that a few tears shed can make God love us anymore. What brings our forgiveness is Jesus hanging on a cross, punished by the Father in our place. But if we've received that gift of God's love and we belong to God and we're part of his family, then it will grieve us when we hurt our father. When we've understood the cross, we don't grieve because we're lost and condemned and there's no way back. We grieve because we love God so much and we hate the things that we've done to hurt him. And here's the great reassurance that God gives us when we come to him in that way when we humble ourselves, when we grieve over what we've done, what will God do? Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. When we exalt ourselves, God humbles us. But when we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. God won't keep us there. He won't keep us in misery. But he'll reassure us of his love in Jesus. He'll show us the cross again, and he'll show us all that we deserved, crucified with Jesus. He'll whisper to us again those great words, it's finished, it's done. 
and he'll take us to the empty tomb and show us the empty grave and remind us that the victory is won once and for all. And as God does that, we'll undoubtedly find a new love, a great love, a love for God, overshadowing and crowding out the cheap and empty love for all those things that we love in the place of God. You see, it's at the cross and in the person of Jesus Christ that we find the better love which can drive out the cheap and tawdry loves which drag us down and pull us into sin. It's no good. It's no good us just trying to get rid of the loves in our own hearts, trying to rip them out and be done with them. What we need to do is to replace those cheap loves with a better love. Thomas Chalmers once wrote a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. (laughs) We need God to so captivate our hearts that it changes what we love and how we live. So the most important part of the remedy to our quarrels and fights and harmful speech and our wrong loves and wrong desires is to humble ourselves at the cross and to look to Jesus and to seek there again and again the forgiveness and the reconciliation that God freely gives us. But not only that, James says, finally, we need to take steps to stop doing what we're doing. So verse 11 and 12, brothers and sisters, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? These Christians were slandering each other, judging each other unnecessarily or or perhaps falsely because they wanted what each other had. And James says, stop doing it. Just don't do it. Humble yourself before God. Seek his mercy in Jesus Christ. But beyond that, stop doing what you're doing. In other words, we can't just grieve and mourn. We need to take steps to stop doing the wrong that we're doing. That is, don't wait until the desires change until you stop slandering people. Deal with the root cause, with the wrong desires. Deal with that with God at the cross. But in the meantime, stop your unkind and vicious words. It's no good saying to someone, well, I would stop slandering uh, you, but I'm just waiting for God to change my heart. James says, deal with that at the cross and take steps to stop speaking like you are. You see, there are two wrong ways, I think, for us to deal with symptoms and causes. One problem is to only treat the symptoms. But that never fixes the disease. We've seen that. We need to deal with our wrong love and our wrong motivations by grieving over them, taking them to the cross so that we can deal with the wrong words that we speak. But another way to deal with symptoms and diseases is to only treat uh, the cause and to ignore the symptoms. And imagine you went to the doctor and you'd broken your leg, you're in incredible pain, uh, and the doctor said to you, well, I fixed your leg, no need for painkillers, because the problem's solved. You look at them and you go, oh my goodness, I'm dying, I'm dying here, give me some, give me some painkillers. It's... We, we know it's not enough to, to deal either with one or the other. We can never just deal with the symptoms or with just with the disease. We need to deal with both. And the same is true uh, in dealing with sin. We need to recognize the cause. We need to know what lies in our hearts. We need to deal with that at the cross. And then we need to take practical steps to stop the ways that those desires manifest in sinful behaviors. 
Now, inevitably, you and I will keep stumbling and keep saying and doing the wrong things and keep loving the wrong things uh, and we'll have divided hearts. Uh, whenever we ask God for something, we'll always, there'll always be a part of us that wants it for the wrong reason. But God is not calling us here to make ourselves perfect. That's the role of Jesus Christ. The role of Jesus is to take us for himself and to present us at the last day holy and blameless and without spot or any other wrinkle. That's his job, that's not our job. But God is here calling us to be serious about dealing with the sin in our lives. And he's calling us to deal with it, not in our own power, but to deal with it through the gospel. How is that? Humble yourselves before God. Receive his grace in Jesus Christ. Trusting in God's forgiveness and renewing our love as we receive again and again and again the grace of God. And putting into practice what steps we can to root out the sin in our lives and to live lives which honour God more and more every day. Let's pray that God would help us to do that now. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we want to confess that whether it's words or, other, or actions, that there are so many wrong loves and desires which drive us. Uh, and Lord, we want to confess too that even just to know our own hearts sometimes is so deeply complicated. Uh, and Lord, we don't know why we ask for things sometimes. Maybe we're asking for good reasons because we want to honour and glorify you. Maybe there's selfishness and worldliness tied up in that. Well, sometimes it's clear <laughs> that we're selfish and worldly. Forgive us for that. But sometimes it's unclear. And we ask that you forgive us for that too. Lord, cleanse us from sin and help us to know what lies in our hearts. But not only to know it, Lord, but to bring it with open hands to lay it, lay it down at the foot of the cross, to grieve, mourn and wail, and to seek your grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that as we sit and live our lives at the feet of Jesus, that we would know more and more every day your great forgiveness, how you've taken hold of our lives, and that you would assure us of your forgiveness and grace, and that our love for you would grow and that growing love for Jesus would push out all the other cheap loves so that we would love you most of all and love everything else for your sake. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.